Amen. You may be seated. Hey, students, I just want to say before I get started uh, how proud I am of you guys, uh, proud of your love for God, and cannot wait to see what God does in your life and through your life, and I want you to know whatever I can do to be an encouragement, to be a help to you, uh, I'm here for you. I mean, I really just cannot wait to see uh, how the Lord continues to work in your life and what He's done up to this point uh, is exciting too. Uh, We're in Romans 12. We're in a series that we have called Live It, and it starts from Romans 12.1 with it's a love thing. The book of Romans basically teaches us what the story of Christianity is all about. It's, it unfolds for us the gospel. And so if you read it in the first 11 chapters, Paul says, don't be ashamed of this. This is the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. Well, then whenever he gets to chapter 12, after explaining it all, he says, therefore, because of all that God has done for us, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And then you have one of the most practical chapters in the Bible on what does Christianity look like in real life. So we've been walking through this chapter verse by verse, really drilling deeply into each section, asking, okay, what does Christianity look like when we live it out? So today we arrive at verse 15 of Romans 12. And here the Bible says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Let's say that verse together on the count of three if we can. One, two, three. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Rick and Kay Warren uh, have a blog, and they had a blog post not long ago called The Definition of Joy. And here's what the Warrens wrote. They said, we tend to think that life comes in hills and valleys. In reality, it's much more like train tracks. Now pay attention to this part here. Every day of your life, wonderful good things happen that bring pleasure and contentment and beauty to you. At the exact same time, painful things happen to you or those you love that disappoint you, hurt you, and fill you with sorrow. These two tracks, both joy and sorrow, they run parallel to each other every single moment of your life. So everybody in this room, regardless of age, regardless of financial level, gender, wherever you are, everybody that comes into this room today, you bring with you some things for which you're very, very thankful. You have blessings that you have brought. You have things that make you happy. And you bring those experiences with you today. But everybody in this room also has sorrows. You have disappointments, hurts that you have brought with you as well. And so there's this destination point that our thinking arrives at, that in a fallen creation, life is always going to bring us both happiness and sorrow. And for a lot of us, during those happy moments, we think, okay, maybe there's sorrow ahead. And during those sorrowful moments, we think maybe happiness is ahead. But the reality is, is that both happiness and sorrow are flowing at any given time in your life. And so we have these moments where a family rejoices because 
they welcome a new life into this world, and then the same family might weep because they're saying goodbye to somebody that they love. You have moments like graduation, where you reach that accomplishment and you're recognized, and it's the finality of those efforts. And then you also have leaving, leaving your friends, leaving your family, and beginning a new chapter. We have the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. We have the thrill of new love. And then you have the breakup. You have the fresh-picked flowers on Valentine's Day. He's so sweet. And then they wither on February 21st. You have the box of chocolates. And then you have the five extra pounds that you gain from eating the box of chocolates. All through life, you have both happiness and sorrow. There will always be these moments whenever we rejoice, and there will also be these moments whenever we weep. So the Bible says, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and and weep with those who weep. In those summits of life, whenever we raise our arms in victory and we look out on the astonishing beauty of the world and we say, I have arrived, I have reached the top, even at those summit moments, there's still this nagging reality that it's not perfect that I still have to go back down, that I can't stay at the summit forever. And the opposite is true that in the valleys of life, whenever you're really struggling and and you're pushing forward and, and your head is down and you feel the load of the weight on your shoulders, it's in those valleys that sometimes we discover the tranquil mountain lakes or the cascading waterfalls that are formed by the mountain's tears. There's always going to be moments of happiness and moments of sadness. But here's what I want you to really get from this this text, that both in happiness and sadness, it's possible for us to have joy. Joy in Scripture is different than happiness. Happiness is related to happening. So when something good happens, I'm happy. When something bad happens, I'm unhappy. But joy is much deeper. Joy is anchored to the purposes of God. And so joy can be there whether you're in good times or in bad. You see, our joy is found in a faith that God is real. And even though there are some things that are beyond my reach in life and I have no control over them, Nothing is beyond the sovereign reach of God. Joy is found in in a hope that even though there is suffering here, it's ultimately temporary because heaven is real and so is eternity. Joy is found in a love that remains even whenever I weep because somebody loves me unconditionally in spite of myself. So here's what the scriptures teach us, that as believers in Jesus Christ, as a gathered church, the scriptures teach us that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. In both good times and in bad, we are to be friends that walk this journey of life together We are to live in, and this is an important word, you need to get this word in your understanding of the church. We are to live our lives in community. Live our lives in community. In Acts chapter 2, there's an example of what does it look like when a church lives life together in community. 
Now, sometimes we think that the early church was perfect, and that's not the case. In fact, the early church struggled with a lot of things. In, in Corinth, they, they struggled with paganism. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, they struggled with racism. The early church struggled with different things. But in verse 41 of chapter 2, we, we see a glimpse of the church living life together in community. 41 reads, so those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. So the apostles preached the gospel, and people received Christ as Lord and Savior. 3,000 people go public with their faith that day and are baptized as new believers in Christ. Instantly, the church in Jerusalem became a mega church, and they also become a public church where people see their faith in Christ. Well, how do they live it out? Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. So whenever they placed their faith in Christ, it put them in crisis mode. In fact, for some of them, it was difficult to get a job earn income. They were isolated from society. And one of the ways that they survived was literally they sold their stuff and distributed it to one another as anyone had need. Well, it continues in verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude praising God and having favor with all people. So their love of God was beginning to overflow out of their lives so that the people that were living in the community saw them living in community. And look at the next part. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So here was this church that had professed faith in Christ. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread with one another, to praying with one another. They were devoted to coming together in worship. And as they worshiped, as they lived life in community, even willing to sacrifice for the good of their neighbor, it began to overflow beyond the church so that the community saw what was happening and they gained favor of people that didn't even know Jesus. And the end result is that the Lord began adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So the story of this church begins with God adding to it those who are being saved and it ends with God adding to it those who are being saved. Within our culture, there are a lot of things that fight against a church having community. Within our culture in which we live, there are a lot of things that cause us to, 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 to push against this idea of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. Let me talk to you about some of these things together. And I'm going to talk a little sociologically, so I need you to, to engage and, and follow along with me and think a little bit, okay? The first thing is that we live in a culture that has a changing understanding of family. Marriage and family are supposed to be where children find security, 
where they're taught about God. It's within the family that uh, children are to be taught right and wrong. It's within their family relationships that day in, day out, kids see love modeled for them. Within our American history over the last 65 years, we've been in a, a process of redefining, particularly redefining what the meaning of sex is. And one of the residual casualties of this redefining is that marriage and family have been greatly changed and even distorted during these 65 years. Just to give you a little comparison, in 1960, the average marrying age for a woman was 20 and for a man was 22. Today, uh, it's 27 and 29. Now, that's not altogether a bad thing because I have three kids and I don't want any of them getting married at age 15 like some of our grandmas did. You remember that? Anybody's grandma got married at age 15? Okay, so maybe it is okay to wait a little bit longer, but here's something else. The average number of sexual partners that a person has in a lifetime has changed from two in 1960 to nine today. And we've bought into a lie that it's possible to have a physical connection with somebody without having an emotional connection. During these 65 years, the divorce rate in our country has gone up approximately 50%. During these years, the fertility rate in our country has gone from the average woman would give birth to 3.65 children in her lifetime to today it's 2.06. It's a very interesting phenomenon or implications if that birth rate gets below 2. Now catch this. In 1960, 5% of births were outside of wedlock. Today, 40% of births in our country are outside of wedlock. So let me give you a summary of this. Americans generally sleep with more people, get married later, divorce more, have fewer children, and one-third of the children are being raised outside of marriage. Now, don't get me as saying that the world was a lot better and everything was perfect before I was born. Hey, way back then, the world was great, and then I came around and messed it all up. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, that when we say things like, family will always be there for you, when we say things like, family is the foundation of society, there are many people that sit in these seats and live in these homes that whenever you say something like that, they say back to you, yeah, right, Because there's many people that are growing, living in our society that have absolutely no healthy relationship models. In their lifetime, they've never experienced unconditional love. They've never had somebody walk through life with them and rejoice with them when they rejoice and weep with them when they weep. And so all they know in life is survival of the fittest and they keep people away and their life and their heart is on lockdown because that's all they've known. But in the church, we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity to show people what it looks like when we live life together in community, when we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, a second phenomenon that has occurred, there has been a massive movement from Mayberry to Dallas, metaphorically speaking. Since 1890, 
the U.S. has transitioned from 40% of our population living in or around big cities to today, 80% of our population lives in or around big cities. In Texas, 85% of the population lives in our big cities. And so we live in these, the suburbs of Dallas, and we generally have big houses. Our houses have air conditioning. We have privacy fences. We have garage door openers so you can go into your garage and nobody even knows that you're home. You have security systems. Uh, in Dallas-Fort Worth, things are changing at a very rapid pace. 500 people a day move to Dallas-Fort Worth. Out of those 500, 70% of those moving to Dallas-Fort Worth are internationally born. So when we say, as Christians, we're to love our neighbor, we're to reach out to those living around us, we're to love our communities, when we say things like that, many people say, I don't even know my neighbor's name. Yeah, they live 10 feet away, but I don't even know who they are. And I'm not sure if I went to their house that we even speak the same language. And so there's, there's, there's these barriers, there's these gaps that stop us from really living in community. A third phenomenon. Steve Jobs invented the iPhone. And because of uh, mobility, we have more awareness, more connectivity, uh, more mobility than ever before. We, we travel more. We, we talk to more people. We use multiple forms of communication. And we live our lives always connected. In fact, some of you, as I've been preaching right now, you've been connected to multiple people through your phone, even as I'm, I'm preaching. You're like texting, will he ever be quiet? You know, you, you've been connected. You're hiding it now, you know. I saw it. No. The dummies up here, they're, they're not, can we call them mannequins? I'm sorry, we can't call them dummies anymore. We're politically correct. Uh, but we've, we've trained ourselves during the slow moments of life, to live life on our phones. And, and we're technologically trained. A fourth phenomenon. Churches, many American churches, have moved from a relational model to a presentational model. Now this has occurred largely over the last 35 years. There's been this tendency to view the church as an organization or a business. Instead of viewing the church as a family or as a community of believers. And so in many, not saying all, but in many uh, American churches, our product has been the services that we offer rather than the Savior that we love. And we've tried to draw people and we've tried to disciple people through member services rather than falling in love with our Savior. And so there are many who attend church regular. I mean, this, you're a member, you have a church, you attend church all the time. It's something you regularly do on Sundays, but you've never yet made that connection that church is not someplace that I go, but the church is me. We are the church. Uh, Murphy Road Church, the people are the church. And so... Just as there is always joy and sorrow simultaneously running at the same time, there's also always challenge and opportunity. And 
because of some of these phenomenons that, that we deal with today, there is also opportunity for you as an individual, for we as a church, for your family to make a, a real deep impact on the community around you. Now let me make sure that you, you caught all that and you've come back to me after that other talk. There is challenge today, but there is also unprecedented opportunity for those that believe in Jesus Christ to make a real impact on those that live around us. When it comes to family, your family may be the only model of a healthy family that some people ever see. When it comes to your marriage, being committed to one another, loving each other, respecting one another, having honor in your family and your marriage, having unconditional love, it can be a model for those that have never even seen that. In our church, we can be a family that rejoices with those who rejoice and weeps with those who weeps and we stay here and we're, we're together and we're in this together even whenever things are imperfect or when things get tough but we model what it looks like to live life in family together for a community that by and large has never really seen what family is supposed to look like when it comes to our neighbors because the people that live around us are for the most part very isolated from their neighbors, we as believers have an unprecedented opportunity to model what Jesus said to us when he said, go and love your neighbor. One of the beauties of the local church is that within the church, we see, or at least we should see, a snapshot of our community. We live within geographical proximity. And so as you love your church and you learn to truly care about the people that you attend church with, you're loving your neighbor. And as we love one another, it overflows from within us so that we're loving the community around us. As we live in community, it overflows so that we realize that we are in the community for the community. And we model for people, this is what community is all about. This is how you live life together. When it comes to mobilization, because we are more connected than ever before, the average person today has a massive platform. You send out a tweet, you Instagram, you Facebook, and you might have 500, 1,000 people that, that hear what you say. That has never been the case for just everybody except for in this point in history. And because of that platform, there is an unbelievable opportunity that exists. Instead of just using technology superficially, to find out what people had for dinner. We can use technology to express care, to express love. We can use technology to express encouragement, to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. There's opportunity through technology to use uh, the means that are available to us to share the gospel in places in this world that have never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. 
places in this world that have walls to the gospel that are built, places in this world that are under ISIS control, and and, and they're, they're walled off from the gospel because of the technology that we have. The opportunity exists that every man, woman, boy, and girl in their lifetime can hear the message and see it in action what it looks like to love Jesus Christ. The church has an unequaled opportunity to model family, to live in community, to demonstrate care. There's three things there that everybody wants. Even if you're an atheist, you ultimately desire a family. You want somebody to care about you. You you, want to live in community. And we have an opportunity today as a church that no other church in the history of the world has, or no, no other season of church in the history of the world has ever had to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's people out there that are desperately longing for someone just to care about them and love their neighbor. Her mom died whenever she was two years old. A few months after her mother died, World War II broke out. Her father remarried whenever she was three, and she began bonding with her new mom. And then one day, her new mom went to the store and never returned. Her father eventually remarried again, and she became a victim of Untold physical abuse and emotional abuse. It was a living horror. And so when she reached grade school, she was sent to whatever relative would take her in. She lived in 11 different states during her 12 years of school. During the process, she became a Christian. She got married. In her marriage, understandably, she had troubles with trust. She had abandonment issues. She had never really seen what it's supposed to look like. Life was hard for her. There was a lot of weeping. But as the years went by, she, she learned how to rejoice more. When she was about 40 years old in 1980, her family started attending Victory Baptist Church in Haltom City, Texas. And there as they attended there, she she met some godly people. She met some people that loved her and cared about her, and she found a family that would rejoice with her whenever she rejoiced and weep with her whenever she wept. She's been in that church now for 35 years. And today she's been married for 54 years. Her and her husband raised their three children in that church. That family became an anchor to her. It became a place of support, a place of encouragement, a place that knew her and loved her, a place that prayed for her whenever she hurt, a place that helped a little orphan girl that nobody wanted become a godly woman that I call my mom. You see, church is supposed to be a place where we rejoice with those who rejoice, where we weep with those who weep. Church is supposed to be a place where those who have never seen love 
see it up close and personal and those that have never tasted family experience it. Church is supposed to be a place where the grace of God flows. And the greatest gift that God has ever given us in His grace, we're willing to extend to others. Church is supposed to be a place where we see genuine godly love and we walk through life together. Because we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, as we come to a time of commitment? Father, we love you so much, and we are amazed that even whenever we were not where we should be, that you loved us. And I thank you that while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. And that because of him, we don't just have a calling to behavior modification and trying to be better people, but because of him, we have a calling to heart transformation and that you change us from the inside out and that you call us to taste of your love and to live in your love. And I pray, Lord, that we will not be satisfied with simply attending something that we call church, but Lord, help us to live life together in community. Help us to be there for people when they go through difficult times and to be there for people when they celebrate victories. And help us, Lord, to walk together, to be authentic. Lord, help us to love our neighbor as you love us. Help us, Lord, to meet people at their point of need. And we, may we have those moments where we drop our jaws and we stand in amazement because you are doing things that only you can do. Lord, help us not to hold back our hearts from you, but instead, Lord, may we give the totality of ourselves to you. Realizing that just as you gave us your son, you call us to give you ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, which is our spiritual act of worship. It's in Jesus' name that we worship. Amen.